everyone. Welcome to the show. I just popped my jaw, so I'm feeling Ooh. good. Nah, it's like an adjustment, like a ah. chiropractor. <laughs> it makes this really loud sound in your head. Mm. But then afterwards, you're like, oh, that feels much better. Here we are talking a lot today. Yeah. Because that's what we do. Using that jaw. I was using that jaw to jaw away, as the old folks say. So here we are. This is episode three of talking about Jim Jones. So let's get into it. So last we spoke, Jim Jones had turned about three years old and they were moving to Lynn, Indiana. Everything I talk about in this series builds on the psychological makeup of the man we know today as Jim Jones or the man we knew as Jim Jones when he murdered and committed suicide in Jonestown, a town of his own creation in Guyana. So you all know that that Jim Jones and a lot of the story that he had there. But we are going way, way back to what his parents were like in the first couple of episodes. And now he is on the scene and he is three years old. So the family has come into the picture. Jim Sr.'s family has finally come into the picture to assist Jim Jr., I mean, Jim Sr. and Lynetta in the way they were living because they were about to lose their farm mm. and they had just had a baby. Mm-hmm. And so here we are. So James Warren Jones, who is a.k.a. Jim Jones, or Little Jimmy, as he has referred Little to. Little Jimmy. Back in the day. So at the age of three years old, they moved to Lynn, Indiana from Crete, Indiana. So it was literally just outside Lynn. But if you <laughs> if you think about the time period of, you know, the 1930s, a few miles could be a whole other place. And it certainly was. So Crete had a population of 28 people. So they moved to Lynn and Lynn had a population of about 950 people at the time. So massive. (laughs) I mean, they're moving on up. Comparatively, if you think percentage wise, much bigger town. It's 55 miles east, east of Indianapolis. You know, most of the families had been there for generations, just like Jim Sr.'s family had been there for generations. You know, Jimmy's father, Jimmy's father's family, you know, they were, they were helping John and Lynetta, I mean, uh, Jim Sr. and Lynetta financially. So they now had two different railroads in town instead of just one. They had the services of a doctor, a dentist, vets. You know, they often paid in goods for those services, like chickens or whatever. But, you know, people who came together on Saturdays, kind of like a farmer's market, but more to trade food off of their farms. It's like, oh, you, you make corn and I make tomatoes. Let's trade type of thing. Like a farmer's market on, you know, Saturdays were for shopping. A few grocery stores, drug stores, newspaper. There was a pool room. There was a barber shop. You know, you, you guessed it. There were several churches. So there we mm. go. Mostly evangelical Protestantism, but also Methodist, Disciples of Christ, Nazarene, and Quaker churches, which were all churches of the time. Not one Catholic church, interestingly enough. On Wednesday nights, they that gathered. Interesting. Right? I mean. Usually everywhere. It's so prevalent now. But at that point, not so much. Not in Lynn, anyway. On Wednesday nights, they gathered to watch movies on the side of a building. Like, this is like community stuff, right? Like, small town. Saturdays were for shopping. Sundays were for church. There were men's social clubs. 
were there. By the 1930s, that was mostly the Masons. But, you know, in the 1920s and the 1910s, it had been the Ku Klux Klan. Let me just read a little bit from Jeff Gwynn's book about that or a paraphrase from his book a little bit about it. You know, they, the men had these social clubs and prior to when Jimmy lived there, Jim Jones lived there in the night, you know, but only maybe a decade prior, the power base of the Klan had uh, drifted north into Indiana. And because the largest organization of any kind in the state was there, you know, in a single year from July 1922 to 1923. So this is approximately a decade before they were there. But think about the lineage of the patriarchy in Jim Jones's family was in that town for decades and decades. So they were definitely there all through that, all through the, the clan being a big part of it. So in that single year, the 22 to 23, it's registered Indiana membership of the KKK ballooned from 445 people to almost 118,000 people oh my God. in Indiana. It, it spread how fast? One year. Wow. In 1922 to 23. But this is interesting because if you're not into this piece of the history or you haven't read about it extensively, which I had not at all, and I still haven't, but I know this fact, unlike its focus in the South, the Klan in Indiana spent little time promoting racial hatred. So in the South, that is absolutely what they were doing. But in the North, in Indiana, so to speak, they were, they weren't, there weren't enough black people in Indiana, less than 3% of the state population. So to make that the paramount issue, though, of course, maintaining white supremacy and racial purity was always part of the Klan agenda. It's not that it wasn't there. It's just if they were going to manipulate Indiana, they weren't going to do it with that because it wasn't an issue because there was only 3% black people. Right. What they chose to manipulate Indiana, instead, the Indiana Klan stressed better public education and prohibition. So both issues played well throughout the state, particularly in rural areas such as Lynn and Crete. So Klan leaders insinuated their group into small towns by sponsoring community picnics and parades, paying for everything and leaving the impression that they too were decent people with similar conservative Christian values. Prohibition, I've mentioned it before, Prohibition and schools were the things that they like laid their political agenda on, basically. So years later, obvious, not obviously, years later, Mr. Jones would explain, meaning Jim Jones, would explain from the pulpit that he had, he had this compassion for blacks because he was the product of a biracial marriage, saying that his father was part Cherokee Indian. But like many stories he told... It was, it, that even true? it was not true. Yeah, <laughs> A lot of the stories, and this is going to be really interesting, I hope, for you guys to realize all the different things that happened along the way that were all these fictionalizations of life, like his mom, fictionalized. Many stories he told, you know, that wasn't true. So there wasn't one ounce of Indian in the family, says a cousin of his. So Jones's mother, Lynetta, was described by people who knew her as this domineering woman, woman and we've talked about this, like her her inability to want to fit in right this domineering woman which was for the time and for the location not this was not an 
urban area where that would have been more frequent. So, mm. But she also derided her husband's inability to make a living, uh, forcing her to find work in factories and as a waitress. You know, almost daily, according to these accounts, she would nag her only child, meaning Jim Jones, that he must make something of himself. And Jones would later say, Jones Jr., Jim Jones, would say later that he had been frequently and unmercifully beaten by his father, who, mm. he, who he portrayed as a Ku Klux Klan member with a strong hatred of blacks. He asserted that he was once beaten for bringing a black friend home to play. And he also said that once when he brought a stray dog home, his father made him get rid of it and then beat him because there was no food for the animal. But my question is this. I don't see how. I have explained at length his dad's conditions, right. his illness, it's his so physicality, all of this. So this is what he's claiming. This is what he would preach on. Yeah. Because as we will find out much later. It's probably somebody else's story. And all you all know about it is that these are these are stories that he made up as a child and then used. To get people to. Just like his mom. To either feel sorry for him or. To get people, yeah, to sort of social politics yes. is what is so. What I'm what I'm trying to draw right now, and this will play out later, is that this Ku Klux Klan, the agenda that I just mapped out, is in many ways similar to the agenda that Jim Jones eventually maps out. Only he does it under racial equality and social justice, and socialism, and that is how he built his community. Mm -hmm. That is what Jim Jones did, is he built a community based on a society at the time that wanted to be unsegregated, that wanted the races to get along, that was promoting socialism and, and interracial relationships and all that. But Jim Jones is literally taking what happened before he was even born, but the community that he, I don't even know if he did it consciously or not, but he's literally taking that agenda, but he's turning it to what that community wanted. Sure. As a manipulation. Yeah. Unbelievable. How did, how would his dad have beat him? His dad could barely breathe. Well, he got really good at storytelling because of his mother, I'm sure. Jesus. But yeah, the, like you said, the manipulation of getting people to feel sorry for him or making him appear more human and therefore they would relate more relatable or some shit. Yeah. I mean, that's my question. That just like, that just never point. happened, Jim. Right. <laughs> that That's my perspective. Obviously. Either that or good old dad was not as disabled as right. we right. thought. It's all like it's all over the place. But what we have from that time period is a lot of community testimony and a lot of cousins and this big ass family that was there that witnessed their brother, you know, uncle, whatever, whoever Jim Sr. was to them. They knew him. Right. So there's a lot of other people to account for the behavior. And what we know is that when kids get beat, like people know about it. Yes. Families know about it. And it, it wouldn't, I mean, it sounds like there was no, usually what we see too, and I, I'll see this in family court is this type of behavior doesn't come out of nowhere. And there's no right. report of 
the father ever beating the mother, even when he was able bodied. Mm-hmm. So like all of a sudden he becomes like a child beater. I don't, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't up. quite track at it this doesn't. point. It doesn't. And we'll see if it, if, if at some point in the story it goes like, oh, well maybe that's how it happened. I'm willing to discover that. that that's sure. But, it, but with the facts that you have, so far, the trajectory doesn't make sense. It doesn't quite make sense to me. Talking about prohibition in America and all of this cultural stuff and the way the world was at the time, I think is really important. And that's why we're going into it, because I think to be culturally competent in this world, and we're all striving to do that in my profession, we are not always good at it. We are not always perfect at it. And we fail quite a bit in being culturally competent. And I see other therapists and psychologists and different people in my community failing pretty poorly, pretty bad at it. And I also know that I'm not perfect at it, but I, not even close. I fail all the time. You just have to be willing to fail and to step in shit and to say the wrong thing, but we're striving towards it. And so one of the reasons why I bring all of these cultural components to this story, and I don't want to rush over it or, or make it too gloss over a lot of this is because I don't think a lot of us, and I certainly am one of that, one of these people is that I don't, I didn't necessarily know like what was the 1930s like, like I'm not a historian. So I kind of need to know the culture that was happening and the way he grew up to understand what made the man and how he could get, how Jim Jones could get to a place of mass murdering almost a thousand people. Like, I need to, I I have to understand what, what the fuck happened. (laughs) So I do want to tell you that prohibition in America, you know, was mandated by the 18th amendment in 1920. So we are right in this, like, that's an old thing to us, Mm -hmm. but it was repealed in 1933. So Jim was born in 31. So he would have been two years old when this was repealed, but that, but having it mandated in 1920 and then repealed in 1933 was probably a profound thing for his parents, maybe, but, or for the society at large, but you have to think about rural Midwest. It made no difference in Randolph County or Lynn, the city, which remained very proudly dry. And so that's what we're talking about. The Ku Klux Klan having had this agenda and whereas maybe it was more Masons and social clubs in the thirties, it was still a dry community and that had been the KKK's agenda Mm -hmm. and it was kept solid. So Lynn preachers thundered against liquor. This is, I'm paraphrasing from Jeff Gwynn's books. It's, uh, which is called The Road to Jonestown, which I have pulled some other quotes in this series from, and we'll continue to pull because I think he's a great writer. In such a small, insular place, it was impossible to sneak a drink without anyone else finding out. Like, there were so many churches and so many people, there's only 900 people, and everybody was watching everybody else's kids. Like, So even getting that liquor, if you needed to drink or wanted to lick, get a drink like even getting that liquor would have involved like taking a bus across straight lines into Ohio they didn't even sell it so wow. there was a few bootleggers in the area you know that knew how to get it and could ply their wares and all of that there was a town pool hall but that was considered sinful because like betting on card games and all of that 
was happening there, but they weren't serving alcohol. They were gambling. You could gamble, but not you drink. gamble, but not drink. <laughs> yeah. Which is so that, that kind of time, opposite that to time our was thing. just so weird. I know. I know. <laughs> so it's just so much, it's so different than what we grew up in. So that's kind of why it's important to just know the context. Sure. You know, to this day, locals apologize for liquor stores in nearby towns. Like it's still to this day, from what I understand, they felt tainted even by the proximity to mm-hmm. liquor. Like, oh, let me apologize for liquor stores existing at all. Right. So the other thing that we talked about with the KK having an agenda around school and better school is that Lynn actually, for decades with rural children, you know, received, received minimal education in one-room schoolhouses. So all the students, all ages, lumped together and often instructed by teachers who had only graduated high school themselves, et cetera. But then there's this guy who came in, Dr. Lee Driver, to restructure the public school system and... Driver was all over it, and he made these full-fledged town schools, and one was in Lynn. So what happened was transportation was provided for kids to get to school. This is major school renovation for that time. Like, farm kids were picked up and brought by buses for the first time ever and attended regularly, to go, went to school. So what ended up happening was that they the 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 rates of high school graduation like skyrocketed and then they could get good jobs and then they could go to college and you know eventually they hired good teachers who had been around the block a bunch and he renovated schools in general so there were like advanced science and mathematics and all this stuff so it ended up that you know, by the early 1930s, terrible economic times found many of the younger couples here and forced, they were forced off their farms and moved away from Lynn, but they had gotten their education in this better place. And so really, really different. Yeah. All of that to say that all of a sudden there was a better school system and Jim Jones would have had those opportunities mm-hmm. by this point. Unfortunately, Jim, Lynetta and little Jimmy were expected you know, to toe the line of the mores of the town. So they were expected to go to church. They were expected to work. They were expected to adhere to the prohibition laws, go to school, etc. So when, when Lynetta and John and little Jimmy moved into Lynn with family support, they were expected to fit into this culture. You know, they, they, these people already knew Jim senior as a boy. They liked him. They respected him for his military service. Mm -hmm. They understand he had issues obviously after the war, but you know, a piece of what was happening was that they found him part-time clerical work because they knew he couldn't work physically anymore. You know, this town came together to give them food, to give them basic furnishings for their house, hand-me-downs, donations, basics. That's what church communities do. We can, we can revile all this stuff. You know, like we can vilify all these things, but that's what a lot of them did. Small rural yeah. towns in that time. Sure. It's a community based, especially church based rural towns. There is a lot of giving. Yeah. There's a lot of community. There's a lot of taking care of each other's kids. So, you know, Lynette, although Lynetta had no interest in making her home a home, the women in the community did it. Mm-hmm. Like everything in their home was from the community. So remember, 
from before that Lynetta didn't want to be a mom, didn't want to keep house, had bigger dreams for herself. But this community was coming together to make it so that they could live, Mm -hmm. right? But she didn't fit in. She talked of wanting the finer things in life, of being a writer. She talked about non-conservative politics, reincarnation. She had a lot of conversations about a lot of things that did not jive with this community. And she rarely spoke to anyone. I think this is where she really fell down, is that her relational skills, as we have discussed, not great. It's not going to be good at that. Not going to be good at people. Just knowing her psychology so far. She rarely spoke to anyone and she declined all the social invitations. So this is a community based on we're going to give you stuff and you're going to be part of the community and that means you got to talk to us and show up at church and show up at shopping and show up at the PTA if they even had that then. You know, not going to do any of that. And over time, that got her a lot of judgment from the town. They felt she was snobby. They felt she was, you know, putting on airs, all of this stuff. So you can see kind of the dialectic of that, where we're kind of talking about how she's pretty much a narcissist. And also I can feel like she just didn't have the skills at all to fit in with this community. But I also feel this community's pressure to be like them. You got to live in this community. You got to be that farm wife. You got to, and both both can be true. Both can be true. And I think both those things are true. She's both a narcissist. And I also feel like she was pressured as a woman in 2022. This is a hundred years ago. Right. (laughs) Like, she didn't have a choice. She didn't have a choice. And if she wanted to get more out of it and, and live a live a life where she felt accepted and could get some of her more emotional and psychological needs met, there was a way to do that. But she didn't she didn't do that. She was extremely sensitive to insult, shockingly. Mm-hmm. She was constantly frustrated when people didn't get her name right or judged her assuming everything was a deliberate personal insult insult but like what i said before she changed her name a bunch of times luna linet lunetta linetta all these little Playing minor these changes yeah and when she moved to lynn she introduced herself as lynette and then they started calling her lynette and then she got mad that they didn't know she changed it to lynetta because of course you know the 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 mem the the memo went out you know and everyone needs to come correct She began to imagine arguments where she triumphed, situations where she fulfilled ambitions to be a great social lady, all the while nurturing these, all of this resentment. Guess who? So she's isolated everyone. She's alienated herself from this community that was there for her taking. Guess who her only audience ended up being? Her son. Yeah. And, you know, this is why movies like Joker did such a good job their dynamic was similar really for sure you know the first lessons that he learned from his mother were that reality is whatever you believe it whatever to be. you make it mm-hmm. and that there was always an enemy out to get you and if if he mirrored her if he felt what she was feeling if he had the same thoughts that she was having then he was the perfect little boy otherwise he was met with resistance humiliation neglect, objection, whatever. Absolutely. So, you know, he made himself in her image, essentially. 
He did. And, you know, like I said, I think in our first episode, you know, she ended up at Jonestown. Yeah. Died in Guyana. So to the death. Yeah. But it's really important that those, you know, and I, I learned a lot of this from Gwen's book. I learned a lot of, there was another book that I will make sure to mention next time because it's not sitting with me right now, but I want to make sure to credit, like I, I learned a lot from a couple of other books and, and a lot of articles online. And I've also, not all of it because there's a ton, but I've read some of her writings. There's also a lot of the FBI confiscated recordings of Jim Jones and all of the recordings from the FBI are on there. Actually, on a website that's from one of my alma maters, SDSU, mm. that's nice. where I went to undergrad and they have a huge library of Jim Jones. So nice. I wonder where that started. Maybe yeah. that's where it started. Uh, anyway, those first lessons, you know, reality is whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And you tell people whatever they want to hear. Yep. Although his mom was not good at that. Jim Jones was. I'll just... I'll just kind of finish this episode out with, you know, Jim Sr.'s health was really failing at this point. So he like coughed all the time. He was also a chain smoker. Keep in mind at that point in time, we didn't know what chain smoking did. I mean, to us, it's real obvious that if you're taking in smoke in your lungs, maybe if you have a lung disease, maybe don't do that. But that wasn't a thing then. Mm -hmm. He was friendly. He tried to work. The town's kids actually enjoyed him a lot and would come around a lot. This is all from like community report. And as we've state as I've stated, this community was very up in each other's business, as you might imagine. He was old Jim instead of, you know, military Jim, but even though he's only in his forties. And Lynette was the lady who wore pants instead of dresses and found it amusing and brandished cussing in public. <laughs> eccentric bunch <laughs> honestly this family yeah. was kind of eccentric and even though all of june jim senior's family went to church and he was a war veteran and that the town actually liked lynetta jim senior and little jimmy did not go to church on sunday and you know that was not really appreciated so when jimmy went off to school in 1936 he goes to first grade and guess what if you remember one of the stipulations was lynetta now has to get a job Bummer, right? She likes to say her skills were in demand and that she was very skillful. But, you know, no one wanted to employ her, actually. So it was kind of hard to get a job. But she did go to work in the factory. And, you know, since a young age, a young Jim was out in the streets running around, you know, that was typical for the time. And that kind of town until around the age of 10, you know, boys were out and about. Girls were expected to be at home, but boys were out and about. And about 10, you get a bike and you do the same kind of thing. And you're just out doing whatever you want. And, you know, his his parents did not participate while with, like, helping other children and watching other children. But this is a whole town supervises all the children kind of a vibe. So there was a lot of eyes on Jim Jones. And that's where we get a lot of these accounts is that the whole town knew him and knew his family and knew how weird his parents were. Jim's aunts and extended family, you know, his dad comes from a family of 13 children, a Quaker family. So aunts, extended family, cousins, neighbors, all the locals supervised Jimmy. They gave him snacks when he was hungry. They gave him first aid when he was hurt. His cousins were his playmates. And this all is really important and plays out in the community that he built eventually. When Lynetta went back to work after Jim went to first grade, there's this interesting rule that happened. He wasn't allowed to go come home without her there. So she was at work all day and his father was at the pool hall and at work and he wasn't allowed to be home alone. 
So everyone in the town felt sorry for him and treated him like a victim as a kid, a victim of his father and mother. And I just want to throw that out there before we get to the next chunk of this where Lynetta goes back to work. Jimmy is taken care of by this community as this victim of this difficult situation and how he begins to develop that personality that we knew later as a narcissist Mm. and a victim and a social advocate and a preacher and all these things. Like this is all really, to me, really visceral groundwork for all of that. But here's how we're going to do this. Like, as you guys know, in this new seasons, our season five, yay. Wednesdays is true crime. Fridays is horror. So what we're going to do is these, this has been this real groundwork for who he was prior to, you know, going to school, like setting up all his, the culture and all his family and who he was as a baby and all these influences. These three episodes began that there will be more episodes in the future on Jim Jones. We're going to elong, we're going to spread this out a little bit because we have a lot of other true crime topics we want to get to. And so next week we're going to do a true crime doc. I think we're doing another one after that and then we'll see where it goes. But the next installment of the Jim Jones story is coming. We're just not going to talk about Jim Jones forever. We want to talk about some other things. Or we could. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get back to it. All right. But just so you guys know, this lays the groundwork and we hope you enjoyed it. And, and Hey, let me know via email or social media or what have you, if you, if you're enjoying it and you can't look, and you can't wait to look forward to more, or if you got some kind of criticism, you can show that to us too. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and consider joining our Patreon campaign because we have a great community there that likes all the same things you guys do. So this has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.